you need different um, blockchains that are going to kind of properly address the needs of different types of users. Uh, and so that's kind of why I think, A, there's so many today mm-hmm. and that we're going to continue to see more and more pop up. afternoon from Dubai. Good morning if you're in America, Western Europe. It's a pleasure for Gaurav and myself to host a dynamic duo who are crypto experts. And because crypto is such a young business, I think their combined age is mine, I'm guessing. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to this live. If you listen to this on replay, thank you for listening to this on our Apple and Spotify and other podcast channels that we are on. Um, Safak, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and then also Temujin, tell the audience a little bit about who you are, what you do, and um, why you're here with us today. Absolutely. So um, so basically, I'm the co-founder of uh, Demo and XDC. So Demo is the parent entity to XDC. XDC is an NFT marketplace. And so talking a little bit about Demo, so we started back in 2016, where we were assisting different blockchains with essentially block propagation services, where we're just helping with the entire tech aspect of things. We then later deployed into uh, the DAB deployment phase where we launched our very first NFT marketplace on the XDC network. And yeah, here we are. So uh, XDC NFT is a marketplace based on XDC network. And today we'll be talking about everything NFTs and interoperability. Wow, impressive. <laughs> and uh, I'll, I'll jump in here. My name is Temujin Louie. I'm the Director of Marketing at Wanchain. Um, so Wanchain itself is a relatively old project by crypto standards, meaning, you know, we've been around since late 2017. So really one of the oldest projects that you'll probably encounter nowadays. Um, but, you know, from the start, Wanchain has been focused on interoperability, basically making different blockchains who generally exist as siloed networks to be able to kind of talk and interact and kind of operate as one combined uh, meta network. And so Wanchain today exists, you know, primarily as a research and engineering focused project. So we're really kind of uh, plugged into the research side of interoperability. We have a few kind of core partners, such as the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance that we work with uh, very closely to try to kind of come up with the standards, you know, that will allow interoperability to really become a reality. Awesome. Thank you so much for that introduction. Before we dive into more um, specific businesses such as XDC and XDC and OneChain and others, let's zoom out. <laughs> Something. what is a blockchain? Why do we need blockchains? And why are there so many blockchains? <laughs> like, well, I, I'm, I have like a few flavors, right? And what? It's like <laughs> French cheese. There are thousands of French cheeses. We've got thousands yeah. of blockchains. What's going on? I mean, so essentially, I'm, I'm assuming a lot of our listeners might know what a blockchain is, but uh, just to sort of uh, put it into a nutshell, it's essentially just uh, the underlying technology of all our famous crypto assets we have. So be it Shiba Inu, be it Ethereum, be it Bitcoin. The blockchain is basically the underlying technology behind it, also known as a distributed ledger technology. Now, why there's so many of it is, so what I like to think of it is the entire blockchain space is a globe. And each city represents a different blockchain, let's say. So if I were to say Ethereum, let's say, is uh, New York, Polygon would then be LA, uh, Exit Network would then be Dubai. Now, each city would have its own uh, infrastructure, its own community, and 
sort of its own governance and how they work, work and how operate it. Yeah. So I think uh, right now, I think there are what, 11,000 or 12,000 cryptos. I mean, in the near future, I do feel that a lot of them are going to get shut down. A lot of them are going to get rock pulled. But eventually, we'll be left with a couple of major cities, <laughs> uh, blockchains, if I may. And eventually, of course, uh, the topic of the hour is interoperability. Eventually, they, everyone is going to be sort of interconnected with each, each other. I'm going to get Temujin to come up with the same question. But if you don't mind, Sathai, I'm just going to slightly adjust your analogy. Mm -hmm. So if Ethereum is Manhattan or New York, I'd argue Polygon's probably New Jersey or Brooklyn. But let's just leave it at that. Temujin. <laughs> Same question we're supposed, to you. we're supposed to get good followers on this podcast. Right? <laughs> Come on, fighting us. Come on. No, no, I'm I am basically uh, requoting Sandeep, so that's all cool. I love it. Here we just, go. He's got a better one. Sandeep, you listening? Let me know, but that's <laughs> Temujin. And I love XDC as Dubai because most of us here are zooming in from Dubai, so mm. you know, I'll, I'll let Garab do the big love to Dubai later on as a lifelong Dubai resident. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll jump in then on the on the kind of the second half of that question since Sartak did such a good job on the, on the first half. So, you know, as you mentioned, there's kind of like a ridiculous number of blockchains today, and yeah. you know, do do we need more? Do we need this many? You know, what what's up with all that? And I guess like to me, um, this is really kind of like a clear indication that there's still some major issues to to resolve. As you said, it's a very young industry. You know, blockchain, the core tech there is strong, it's proven, but, you know, there's still improvements that are, that need to be made and that are, that are being made. We look 10 years from now, it's not going to look the same that it is now. So I think that's kind of one of the symptoms, uh, uh, one of the symptoms of this fact is that there's so many blockchains because, you know, everyone has different use cases, different requirements. We talk a lot about this, you know, trilemma, the decentralization, scalability and security and, mm -hmm. Okay, if it, let, let's ignore all these these so-called kind of miracle solutions that go out and claim, you know, that they've solved all three. It's not an issue anymore. But in terms of kind of more legitimate projects, you know, that are kind of making these decisions on how to balance these three these three factors, and you know, different users, different types of users, they themselves probably have different needs as it relates to these three uh, three factors. You know, some some enterprises, government use cases, you know, they might be totally fine having a um, you know totally centralized uh, solution and then they could just kind of max scalability and security you know some um, you know regular users you know probably care more about the decentralized decentralization side of, of the equation so you need different um, blockchains that are going to kind of properly address the needs of different types of users uh, and so that's kind of why I think a there's so many today mm -hmm. and that we're going to continue to see more and more pop up I really think you know that's kind of going to be the case um, indefinitely until we get something like industry-wide standards, you know, that really are enforced, whether that be by government or, or whether it be more of a grassroots movement, you know, that, that establishes these, these standards. And then at that point, maybe you'll finally start seeing kind of some stability in the industry. Now, we've touched upon all these blockchains, thousands of blockchains. Television. Talk us through interoperability between these blockchains and how your protocol, your organization comes into this. Sure. Um, so if we go back to this kind of the start of, let's call it just mainstream blockchains, uh, you know, after Bitcoin had launched and then Ethereum had launched and 
And that was kind of the really the, the, the jumping off point for having all sorts of different blockchains being able to launch. You know, especially those early days, they were either trying to replace Ethereum, the so-called ETH killers, or they were just complete uh, copies of Ethereum. And, you know, oftentimes they were both. They were com exact copies that were claiming they were going to kill Ethereum. <laughs> um, and, you know, we started seeing that you might have little ecosystems or different tokens appear on some of these uh, blockchains, but you really couldn't do anything between them. You were stuck on Ethereum. You were stuck on, um, I'll just use Polygon here, but it could be any 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 other blockchain. And you're really isolated into this one uh, network. So what interoperability in a project like OneChain um, is trying to achieve is to allow kind of the interconnection to turn these so sort of intranets into really kind of more of an internet uh, composed of many different networks or many different blockchains. And, you know, it's it's a incremental process. Uh, where the industry at right now is right now is we're all pretty good at being able to move kind of value to move tokens from one chain to the other. I can jump into a little more detail about that in a second about how it's done, but that's kind of where we are at in the industry. You know, a few years ago, we were able to kind of verify messages cross-chain. I could pretty convincingly say, you know, on, on network B, I can read and detect a message written on, ne on network one, you know, and I'm very, very confident in, in, in the accuracy of that message. So that was kind of the first step of building this interoperability. Then, like I said, we were able to get the value transfers, meaning I can lock my ETH on Ethereum and I can mint a mirrored version or a wrapped version of it on XTC, for example. And now I can functionally use Ethereum on another network. Now, these are kind of like cool use cases, um, but it's not, I don't think, what anyone would consider quote unquote true interoperability. We really will kind of want more of a seamless experience. So I think that's really the, the end goal. Frankly, the industry is not there yet, but it, what it's going to kind of, or at least what OneChain thinks and what I also believe is that the next kind of major step of interoperability is going to be cross-chain smart contract call uh, function calls. So basically being able to directly call a function in a smart contract on XDC network from Ethereum rather than using kind of wrapped assets and things like that. Um, of course, to do that, you're going to need some type of universal language, some standards, you know, something like a TCP IP, but for the blockchain world to make to make that possible. And then, you know, once that is in place, then you can really start seeing these type of cross true cross chain applications. You know, right now, there's a lot of applications that say they're cross chain, but really what what that basically means is we can use wrapped assets. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's something that is really operating seamlessly on multiple networks. Uh, is kind of definitely the, the the end goal of interoperability. Sounds like you you guys are talking about interoperability, NFT interoperability. Mm -hmm. Are you going to do real interoperability, or you're doing this wrapping stuff as well? No, I mean of course. Now, of course, as as uh, Demogen said, so we are still far off from sort of having two smart contracts all function from different blockchains. So I mean, we definitely are inching towards that. The industry is inching towards that. So uh, up till then, of course, uh, the only doorway we have is through sort of to get into these wrapped assets uh, sort of functionalities. So that's definitely something a lot of the major players are doing as well. Now, once we do sort of start evolving above the whole wrapped assets uh, sort of phase, and we have that ability to sort of you know call those functions directly, that's when we achieve like true decentralization and true interoperability. I mean, there's a lot of R and D that goes behind it. So, I mean, uh, in my opinion, if anyone's going to be the first ones to do it, it's definitely going to be one chain. 
So even even for even for our bridges with the marketplace and everything, we are using the underlying technology for from on chain. So that's what's helping us with the whole interoperability side of things. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, I'm not I'm not trying to slander wrapped assets or anything like that. You know, they, it was they, it's a cool technology and it creates yeah, yeah. definitely some types of use cases. But uh, but there's more. You know, it's not mm -hmm. the end goal. It's a it's a step along the way. Yeah, yeah. So today. They're obviously cross-chain bridges, mm -hmm. and they've been in the news a lot this year because of hacks and and often sort of social engineering-driven hacks. I don't know if either of you want to pick up on what's going on in that space at the moment and why they've been vulnerable to the hacks this year and the flaws and what needs to happen in the short term to remediate or remedy this. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I like to think I can... of it. Oh, sorry, good, good. <laughs> <laughs> we all just want to talk about the hacks. Uh, yeah, no, go for it. <laughs> um, but yeah, def definitely, you know, we've all seen it. It's been awful news, especially for someone who does build bridges like Wanchin when you see all the headlines, uh, you know, about all oh, cross chain bridges unsafe. Look at this hack, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, stolen. Obviously, it's a bad thing. Um, and and quite frankly, you know, bridges themselves, you know, they they have to be really well made, and let, or else there's going to be kind of um, you know vulnerabilities that are going to pop up. You know, frankly, bridges are very easy to make. You know, uh, almost any any project could bridge a token from one um, chain to another if they don't care about security, if they don't care about decentralization, you know, if, they, if the only thing they care about is I can lock it on one chain and then I'll mint another token on another chain, anyone can do that. And I think one of the reasons it, that we've seen this kind of uptick in um, bridge hacks is because more and more people have, you know, been bold enough to do it that way. You know, someone with no kind of background um, in interoperability and just thinking, well, you know, we, we, we could probably just do it ourselves. And so we've seen that kind of happen a lot. And then like clockwork, it ends up getting exploited because bridges, you know, they, because they exist somewhat between different blockchains, it creates a lot of several different um, potential vulnerabilities. And some of them are related to the bridge itself. Some of them are not. So for instance, you know, if I'm bridging, I'll just keep using Ethereum and XDC here. So if I'm bridging from Ethereum and XDC, not only when I'm designing the bridge architecture do I have to ensure that that is A, decentralized and, and B, secure, but then the bridge itself is also kind of um, impacted by security issues on both the source layer one blockchain, so Ethereum, and also the, uh, the, the target um, layer one, in this case, in this example, XDC. So there's just kind of a lot of different angles that the bridge has to account for, and this is why, you know, it's really... Um, a, a relatively slow and incremental developing sub-industry. And this is also why when people, you know, are bold enough to just jump right into the water and launch it, uh, launch a bridge without proper R&D that you do see these uh, these exploits. And then also the fact that there's, you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars locked into mm -hmm. these things that do make attractive targets to, uh, <laughs> to nefarious actors. Something is anything else you want to do add to that? No, I mean, I think uh, Temujin pretty much aced it. Uh, but what I like to think of uh, these sort of potential hacks and vulnerabilities, I like to divide the bridges into two categories. So one of them being a trust-based bridge, one of them being a trustless uh, bridge. Now, uh, to give you uh, an example of this, uh, imagine yourself in a grocery store. I mean, you're at the checkout, 
you ha either have two options. Either you go to the cashier to get your things built or you go to a self-checkout. Now, this is where the centralization things, uh, part of things come. When you go to a cashier to get your things built, we are sort of establishing a single point of failure for the uh, trust-based bridge. But whereas when you're going to the self-checkout, there is certain, certainly some sort of decentralization, but also you are relying on the fact that the uh, POS, uh, the sort of server is gonna be working perfectly. So, I mean, there are certain issues with the hack, hacking side of bridges still, it, be it trust-based or be it trustless. There, for the trust-based, of course, the number one source is definitely centralization and single point of failure. For the decentralized ones, there's, of course, uh, I mean, if you just take an example of uh, the wormhole hack, which was 320 million from uh, the Solana and ETH bridge. Um, I mean, the reason for the hack later identified was a vulnerability in the smart contract. So, I mean, things like these will just keep us sort of, you know, on our toes to not have these. I mean, it's a hard way to learn, but it is one of the ways to definitely get more secure and you know, just go towards the more secure side of the bridges. And I'll add one thing to that because you did mention the, uh, you know, the smart contract issue often, and I would venture to say potentially every single bridge hack mm. that has happened, the part of it that was exploited was not the parts of cross-chain technology yeah. that are unique mm. to cross-chain uh, interoperability solutions. It can be things like, um, Sartak said, maybe there was a coding issue in a smart mm. contract. You know, these type of risks are not risks that are about crossing technology itself this is uh this is a potential vulnerability in smart contract like poor poorly programmed smart contracts so this is something that's not unique to crossing technology um similarly mm -hmm. you know most of these big hacks um there's like a human element you know that is involved yeah. you know that, mm -hmm. that gets either socially engineered or something like that yeah. this also again is not about crossing mm -hmm. technology itself it's more so the fact that you have these um let's just call them like these the sub industry, the bridges where they're, it's relatively new and therefore um, it's attracting a lot of inexperienced people. And so these people be kind of the, the target, let's say. Uh, and, and we'll just ignore for now, you know, the, the, the handful of times where it was, you know, properly, proper malfeasance, you know, where, pretend, mm -hmm. where potentially a bridge maker mm -hmm. is claiming that they're doing one thing, but then they get exploited and, and you realize actually, they weren't at all doing what they what they were saying you know they were they were saying they've had it was completely decentralized and then some hacker found like oh actually all the funds are in one wallet and i yeah. emailed <laughs> emailed this dude and tricked him to give me his private keys and now i developed <laughs> sorry let me choke that <laughs> i'm gonna bring garov into the conversation in a second uh he's gonna ask about projects and all of that stuff but before we do that We've had a we've had a listener, someone listening live who's actually messaged in a question. So I thought I'd put that into the conversation. And it kind of is part of this interoperability discussion we've begun happening, um, begun, begun uh, having. Um when we listen to end use cases, when people say, hey, this is why gaming is going to be amazing in web three, or this is why the metaverse or whatever is going to be amazing, the examples often given is you have your racing car. I mean, my friend Garam has loads of these, but he can drive them from Dubai to Abu Dhabi or fly it to, you know, Rome. But in games today, you're stuck in one universe. And the promise is that in Web3, I'd be able to, Garam would take his whatever classic Ferrari from one universe to another. And we know it doesn't happen. 
we know it doesn't happen, right? Uh, same whether it's like, you know, you know, my fancy handbag or whatever, you know, it just, <laughs> you're stuck in one space. So how is this going to play out? Like, when are we going to get this promise of interoperable in the end use case that I will be able to take my, you know, make-believe pixelized, pixelated Ferrari from one universe to another, from this, you know, Unity platform to some other whatever. I mean, could you put a timeline on this? Seven years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, but, but, but more, but, but, yeah, but, but more seriously, of course, it's a little difficult to say exactly when yeah. it's going to happen. But I think we can be optimistic in that. Um, you can see the seeds and the and the first steps that are mm. that are being taken right now. So, like, I'll play a bit with that specific example you gave, you <laughs> yeah. know, with kind of related to gaming. I remember, um, you know, in the previous bear market, let's say, you know, so a few mm. years ago, that's kind of when the early conversations had, at least you know, when I was getting exposed to them, early conversations mm. about, um, you know, the blockchain's impact on gaming and what the and what what that could mean. Mm. And then people were kind of getting stuck um with the general idea of like oh why okay so it's kind of cool you know okay the idea of i can bring um you know a weapon from game one and use yeah. it in game two that's Absolutely. a cool idea and then yeah. and then the pushback was always like oh well you know a why would any major game company do that or b you don't need blockchain to do that uh mm -hmm. you know if, if i'm ubisoft and i want to do that i can just do it you know i i don't know how many of you are hardcore gamers but like when uh when Destiny 1 was coming out, that was kind of like, they didn't, they didn't necessarily follow through on it, but that was like the pitch, you know, like you'd find a gun and you'd see the whole history of the gun. Oh, this gun was used to kill like this specific monster, like, uh, you know, two years ago. And it had this real history and you could show off this, this weapon and it had all this kind of rich lore uh, tied around to it. And so, like I said, people were very, very skeptical, but then, you know, maybe at the height of this, this most recent uh, bull market, I, mm. you started seeing some things like that and it kind of mm. popped up in ways that were unintuitive. So for instance, you started seeing that instead of starting with the game, you know, grassroots developers were starting with the weapons. They were starting to build NFT quote unquote weapons that were not part of games. And then they were making them publicly available for any kind of indie game developer to then go and take the these weapons. And then via kind of the back door, we started seeing, okay, now I can actually answer that question from three years prior when people were saying no one would ever do that well you just have to spin it a little bit and then you can kind of see the path because it, it's very unintuitive to say you know i'm going to make a game and i'm going to start with weapons you know that don't belong to any yeah. game rather than take a game a, a weapon from one game and bring it to another so i think you know this is happening and it's cool it's something you know i wouldn't have thought about on my own to mm -hmm. i don't even know if i would have believed that it would that, would that it would work but then it started happening so i think this is the kind of real exciting part about interoperability. Mm. And as cool. more and more of these things pop up, you're going to see these crazy ideas. Maybe we can take it offline, Temujin, and you can show me the games and the- uh, Yeah, I'll, I'll send you some links. I've already blasphemed by talking about your digital cars. So come on into the conversation. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Ron. No, it's been, it's been super interesting. I'm, I'm loving the conversation because, you know, sitting, sitting from day one out here in, in Dubai where you know, they set up the global blockchain forums and assemblies and groups way back, I mean, seven, eight years ago when they first started with 
the prime minister's office before they'd even done anything with the Buy Future Accelerator. It's super interesting to see how the conversation started with what is blockchain, almost how Ron had started this conversation. You know, <laughs> what is it? Why does it even start? And you know, that concept, that discussion is still happening today, actually at its core, right? Why blockchain? And the conversation evolved. I remember when people talked about blockchain in the beginning, they were like, why blockchain? Then people said, oh, but you know, the transaction volume per second is too slow. Okay, we've solved that problem. Now we're talking about security. Okay, we've solved that problem. And now we're talking about, there are so many chains. Now we're talking about interoperability. So the confidence level of these, this momentum of this community and the developers that are sort of getting on board with the program of you know, building this infrastructure, essentially, essentially, which is what it is. It is a brand new core infrastructure and in rails for transactions and interaction types to ride on, right? I think interoperability itself will also be something that will be solved and then the next discussion will come. But the reason I bring this up as a, a moving segment of each of these things that are happening is an organic discussion and, and the life cycle of blockchain is what is it for, right? From your point of view that you're seeing adopted and organically you've talked about gaming, right? And that's one thing. Now, gaming was never a problem to solve, but it's an opportunity to create a better ecosystem for those interactions, which people have genuinely craved for and creating unit economics in a different space. It's created a different opportunity and engagement with that community. I don't think it solved the problem, right? Leaving that aside, what are the other use cases that both of you are seeing current adoption for is something that I'm interested in. I'm, and I want to move just into things that perhaps the people who are on this conversation, listening to us right now, who might be into the space or might not be into the space can actually learn from both of you to understand. Is it medical? Is it COVID testing? Is it uh, you know tracking people who are trying to avoid taxes? I, I don't know. Is it, you know, giving identity to refugees that fall into displaced people programs. Can you guys tell us from both of your perspectives, what else you're seeing as adoption from what's happening in your space and you're creating for? And yeah, I mean, what, uh, either one sure. of you, yeah, mm -hmm. go ahead, please. Yeah, 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 I know, I mean, I think uh, with the blockchain adoptions, I mean, it's spread out in a lot of different types of uh, industries and it has a lot of use case, I would say. I mean, it's ranging right from, I think it's uh, finance, energy, data storage, uh, privacy, security, ML, there's AI is coming up, there's payments, there's, I mean, social network, content creation, supply chain, paid finance, I mean, n number of things that are sort of shifting towards uh, the blockchain environment. I mean, even if you look at, uh, so there's this uh, place in India called Jharkhand. So the entire military, door, military data source system is going to be shifted to a blockchain-based source system now. This is, of course, because it's more sort of secure, tough to hack, and all those things. So I think a lot, a lot, a lot uh, of the world is going to be reliant on the DLT underlying solutions of the blockchain, especially because of the securitization of things. That's, yeah, it's interesting. And, and Temujin, from your point of view, what are you saying? Yeah, I think I think you mentioned something very interesting about you know new opportunities versus solving problems. So I think definitely you know we, when we naturally just start speaking, we end up talking about new opportunities because those are sexier and a little more exciting. Mm -hmm. But in terms of kind of the current use cases that are solving problems, I think it's basically 
kind of all, all the stuff that's happening in the back systems. <laughs> so it's not really, mm -hmm. it's not really particularly, uh, you know, exciting to talk about when you talk about supply chains or things like that, but anything where there's, you know, today potentially, uh, you know, uh, data quality slash, you know, the, the verification of data issues or transparency issues. So this really are things that happen in kind of all industries when you have, um, basically different entities that need to be sharing information in some way. So you see this in supply chain, you see this in, in, in healthcare, you see this in, um, in, in commerce, really kind of, kind of across the board. And so this is kind of where blockchain is, at least the lowest hanging fruit uh, is what blockchain solves. Um, if we talk about international remittance, it's not only because you know, Bitcoin was the first kind of application, let's say, uh, uh, of blockchain. It's because the issues that are kind of present today in, in international remittance are also well suited for uh, the for, for to be solved mm -hmm. by by blockchain. As you're kind of moving to money uh, to different countries, you know, oftentimes they might be using different messaging uh, formats. Um, I think some people might also be surprised, you know, to find out that when you're doing an international transfer, depending on where you, you're sending it to, of course, sometimes you need, you know, manual human intervention to complete the, these transactions. They might also be, you know, surprised to find out that, you know, the, the messaging and the, um, you know, and actually uh, balancing the accounts are different processes. You know, when you think about it, it's automatic when you think about it mm. with, with uh, blockchain that these two layers have become combined. Uh, you can send the message, you know, and the value together. So these themselves are already kind of direct solutions to a lot of the kind of friction mm -hmm. that is happening um, in huge systems, you know, that impact all of our daily lives, but they're, they're back systems, you know, so it's, it's just kind of uh, replacing the kind of engine uh, that society is running. Right. On. It's, it's and, the infrastructure, and that's what's going right? to help. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. It's, it's the infrastructure and you know and that's that's something else that's also very interesting to understand is because as you increase adoption there's another unique problem that sort of crops up around you is is when we first started talking about blockchain long time ago here in dubai at you know the prime minister's office here at, at group uh, the other thing was the number of developers i think at that time mm. globally it was on record that there was something like just under 18000 blockchain developers globally <laughs> at that time mm. 18,000 I mean it's literally you know they went and looked at all the big four and everyone else and said how many do we have and they're like 18,000 you know 20,000 they're like there must be a zero missing there and they're like nope <laughs> that's it so right so from from that perspective that creates another issue right I have so many different people trying to create a better cookie cutter kind of model effectively right my chain does this, your chain does this, my chain does that. And yes, consolidation will happen and about a, a large percentage will find their way out or sustain through some micro adoption because they can. But what are you guys seeing on both your sides in terms of training, academia, adoption? Because what's also interesting is coders are getting younger and younger and younger, right? And people are experimenting more and more and more with ecosystems. How many people are out there in the ecosystem who are developers right now? Do you guys know? And what are you guys doing in your own ways as initiatives to train people to support these ecosystems as they grow? Yeah, I mean, I... I, I sorry, go, go ahead, ahead, go ahead, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> I should go correct. Ahead, go for it. <laughs> sounds, sounds like you go for it. Go on. Go on. 
and then I'll switch over to the next question. Go. <laughs> no, I mean, this is one issue which uh, even we as a company face a lot uh, to get some really good devs on board. This is definitely one of our growing concerns. I mean, there is definitely scarcity in the market. I mean, if you, you want a good dev, you either pay a huge bomb for it or they're just not busy or the schedules are too packed and you just have to wait like eight to 10 months for them. So, I mean, this is definitely one of the huge aspects uh, in the space. Um, it's starting to sort of fade off now. I mean, there are different initiatives as, uh, essentially from, uh, I think different blockchains from Polygon, from XDC network as well. So XDC network has this uh, block degree program where you know you get to learn about all this. So, I mean, things like these will slowly sort of uh, make its way into uh, universities as well, offering like a two-year or three-year blockchain degree or something like this. And I think th that's when we actually start seeing a lot more sort of uh, fluidity in terms of depth. Yeah, you know, I, I think, um, you know, definitely, I, I can't give you like an exact number or anything like that of how many blockchain developers are, are, are out there, um, but certainly it's a high, it's a high demand role. Um, and I think we can at least say that the number is increasing. Um, and I think part of that reason is also because there's some um, clear goals and targets now, you know, maybe a few years ago, it really was kind of like the wild west. If you're going to become a blockchain developer, you're like, what really right. are you doing? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, nowadays, you know, we've seen the, the proliferation of, of Solidity and EVMs and things like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're now able to, or young developers are able to develop a skill set, you know, that's applicable to, you know, multiple different venues. You're not kind of pigeonholing yourself into like, a, you know, one one of six thousand jobs worldwide or anything like that. So even though they're they're very lucrative, there's more and more opportunities. And like we already said at the start of the call, you know, there's more and more blockchains, but mm -hmm. a lot of these are very similar to Ethereum, uh, or at least using EVMs um, and the same programming languages. Um, but it's but it's but it's going to be a process certainly. I mean, at Chain ourselves, you know, we have a pretty stable team um, at, at this point in terms of on the on the development side. So we don't have like very aggressive um, programs in place to to train new devs or anything like that. Although our VP of engineering, who's kind of the the, the main designer of all of our interoperability solutions, he is also a professor at the University of Texas, and so he actually teaches a, a smart contract course there. Um, no, focused on, on solidity smart contracts, but um, so you know there we. We're kind of uh, you know very involved on the academia side in terms of the, the the research with the enterprise Ethereum Alliance and things like that. But I can say probably have a, a foot in the water in terms of education um, as well, uh, at least uh, at least a little bit. I think before I, I hand back to Ronit, I think we've clearly run over time, so I'm going to drop one last question in front of both of you as a mic drop and run away. And Ronit can take <laughs> take take things over and and close up, but. You know, the other, the other part of looking at this is, okay, so we've talked about use cases, we've talked about adoption, we've talked about supporting the ecosystem, we've talked about all benefits, you know, it, where we're going through it, it to, to a certain degree. The last thing I want to talk about is cost, right? There's always a cost to build this infrastructure, to maintain this infrastructure, to keep, and to keep developing this infrastructure and make it secure, more efficient, faster, because that's the roadmap everyone wants to go on, right? And that's the other piece, right? I mean, what is the cost going to be like to for this ecosystem and this people to use this ecosystem? Is it going to still be very expensive as it, it tends to be in a lot of places today? Is there going to be some sort of consensus like you see 
in Europe or standardization that you see in you know other spaces, which is controlled by regulators to protect consumers. Where do you guys see cost of the utility in this ecosystem being measured or controlled or driven down to a point where those providing the infrastructure can actually sustain it by putting money back into R&D and growing it, and also the users who are using it actually not incurring such high fees to actually engage with it. What do you guys think on that? And Temujin, I'll chuck that one at you first, because go for it now. <laughs> yeah, um, I, you know, I, I'm very optimistic on this particular issue. Um, I, I think the costs are going to come down. Um, we've, we see them come down uh, in bear markets already. Uh, but, you know, that's not a long-term solution. That's just uh, uh, market forces. But, uh, you know, I, I still personally believe that... Um, you know, a chain like Ethereum is still such like a big part of the industry right now. And they have very, very clear, uh, a very, very clear roadmap on how they, you know, are, are going to address these issues. Of course, they just had the merge that wasn't really kind of about, uh, you yeah. know, the cost of fees or, or processing speed directly. But the kind of next major um, milestone is the sharding. So that, that itself is going to uh, help the scalability and, and with increased scalability comes, you know, more reasonable costs. Um, so I think on the one the one hand, the, the developers themselves, um, you know, those who are running, let's say, um, newer blockchains um, that have different types of trade-offs, they themselves are not particularly expensive right now. Um, but but the kind of more popular ones like uh, like Ethereum, um, I think in the long term, from an engineering perspective, changes will be made to bring those costs down. And then from the other side, I do think regulators are coming. I think that's ultimately a good thing. Um, I don't know if they're necessarily going to say, you know, it has to be below this cost per transaction. That might be a, li a little beyond the scope, but I think they will have be able to exert their influence. Um, you know, once they, uh, A, they'll have some sort of role, I'm sure, in playing in terms of establishing, um, you know, cross-chain um Kind of messaging standards, you know, I, I briefly alluded to like a TCP IP for the blockchain world and what, but they're like the, the TCP IP was for the internet world is made by DARPA, you know, it's not something that, you know, <laughs> that, that just emerged on its own. So like, whilst it's good to do that work now, you know, at some point, this is kind of where um, governments and, influ and um, regulators are going to, are going to influence things, I'm sure. Um, as well as probably some guidelines in terms of, you know, what, how decentralized does something have to be to be considered decentralized, let's say it that way, uh, and kind of provide, you know, uh, actual definitions, you know, along that spectrum until mm -hmm. what is, when is something sufficiently decentralized and all these types of, uh, these influences that they can exert on the system. Uh, I think these will ultimately, um, you know, bring into a more sustainable model. Yep, I guess it's time for a blockchain alliance, Ronit. I think you should uh, you should stitch that <laughs> together. But uh, Sartak, same question to you, and then I'll hand back. No, absolutely. I completely, completely agree with uh, Temujin here. Um, I, I personally still think uh, um, like a $10, $7 gas fee is going to be a thing of the past. Um, people aren't going to be paying more than, I would say, like a quarter of a dollar as a gas fee, even, even lesser. So, I mean, it's definitely, definitely going to be a much more affordable for you for a user perspective, perspective as well. And also for an enterprise to tie up with the blockchain. Right now, I mean, the cost they're bearing is super, super, super duper high. So that also would keep sort of uh, going down and down and down. 
All right, guys. Well, thank you both so much for that. That was super insightful. I hope that gives uh, our viewers and, and listeners some other alternative perspectives as well on the scope there. So Ronit, back to you, sir. Just as a wrap up to bring this all home, uh, maybe a uh -oh. one minute answer from each. Uh oh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what have you got up your sleeve, Ronit? What have you done? Sartak, you can go first on this one. <laughs> and this is where I go on. Mute. It's there basically everything we just talked about for the last 40 minutes. So, uh -huh. 2030. Mm -hmm. Are we still talking about Web3 and blockchain? And if so, why? Like, what are the big day to day use cases? Or are we looking back and going, nice stepping stone? We're now in web five or web six or whatever mm -hmm. it is, Jack Dorsey and others are pushing now, music track. <laughs> <laughs> Level three, web seven, I don't know. Um, no, I, so mm -hmm. 60 seconds each. All what right. are we, what does it look like? What does the blockchain web three world look like in 2030? All right, 2030, all right. So I think from a blockchain point of view, uh, it's here to stay. It's the underlying technology. I mean, yes, of course, we would build more things on top of it. Uh, I think a lot of uh, this, uh, changes would start coming from uh, the sort of gaming point of view, from financial point of view. Um, just a quick example, like how we have double entry accounting in today's world. With blockchain, we get triple entry accounting, so we basically don't need audit time. So things like these are definitely going to take over the big four, like you know Deloitte, KPMG, and whatnot. Uh, they are definitely going to be incorporating these. And now with commercial enterprises like Gucci, LVMH, also dwelling into the world of Web3. It's definitely here to stay, I would say. Uh, I'm not a big uh, sort of uh, vision of, I don't have a big vision of like the web five, web seven for now. Yeah. I think 2030 would be when we, you know, get sort of on the peak of web three side of things. Yeah. And maybe some other technology comes then, then we maybe do uh, welcome a bit open hands. But yeah, for now, I just think uh, blockchain, web three, it's definitely here to stay. And 2030, we'll see a lot of mass adoption and things keeping moving forward. And also not to forget, the 11,000 cryptos we have are definitely going to fall down to let's say 1,000 or even 500 for that matter. A lot of them are going to sort of fade away. That, all, that's I heard, all I heard, Ronit, was party on these guys. So let us know where you <laughs> show up and we'll be there to celebrate all your success. So wishing you guys the best on that front. I mentioned 60 seconds. I think South Africa made it six minutes, but uh, 60 seconds. <laughs> yes, 20, 2030, I think. A lot of things are running on blockchain. <laughs> I hope we don't have to talk about it as much, uh, trying no. to convince people. I hope it's just happening in the background. We don't want yeah. necessarily the users, the end users to have to know what they're interacting with. Mm -hmm. 2030, frankly, is probably a little soon to have that like uh, true seamless experience, but, but I'm optimistic. Let's just say 2030, fine, let's do it. Uh, <laughs> and I also think, you know, a lot more um, assets are gonna be tokenized. Um, but again, you know, we don't want to, we don't want that to surface to, to the end user. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, blockchain is going to continue its steady march forward. More and more enterprises are going to start uh, adopting it in different parts of their tech stack. But the big improvement is going to be at the user experience level. It's going to be way more seamless. It's not going to feel dangerous. You know, every time you want to send uh, a token, <laughs> if you send Bitcoin, you're not going to sit there sweating for an hour, you know, wondering <laughs> if you made a mistake. Uh, it'll just be a nicer experience. Yeah. <laughs> With that, blockchain in 2030 is going to be like a walk at midnight in Dubai, not San Francisco. We're going to end here. Thank you, everybody, <laughs> for joining. That's an awesome session.